0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akhil Amar, and a special guest. We're very, very happy today to welcome Professor Kathleen Clark. But first, let me just say hello to Akhil. Hey there. Uh, Hey, back. And I I know that uh, Akhil and and, uh, Professor Clark know each other, so I'm going to be at a disadvantage here, but uh, there's nothing unusual about that. But uh, let me tell our audience a little bit about about Professor Clark. Um, so uh, she's professor of law at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. She uh, practices law in Washington, D.C. And you know her practice has a particular interest in uh, topics that are dear to our heart these days, uh, legal ethics, government ethics, laws of whistleblowing, and uh, national security law. So she attended Yale College where she very interestingly uh, majored in physics and philosophy. And then later she earned her JD from the Yale Law School, and she clerked for uh, federal district judge Harold Green. And her her path since then has uh, taken her to a variety of universities, including University of Michigan, Cornell, and then uh, Utrecht, and the University of Economics and Law in Vietnam. You know, this last is part of what's been a distinctly international flavor to her career. She learned Russian in the Soviet Union and Spanish in in Guatemala. In in uh, Washington D.C., she's served on the rules of a professional conduct review committee of the D.C. Bar. She was counsel to the uh, for the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, she wrote an ethics manual for District of Columbia employees and has written extensively in law journals and books as well as popular media including new york times washington post the hill and many others and she's quoted frequently and widely um for everything from the wall street journal and the national review to uh, mother jones and uh and the aforementioned new york times so it's a real pleasure to welcome a true expert uh, professor kathleen clark
1: thanks andy i'm really happy to be here with you and akil
0: I mean, since you mentioned me, that's my
2: cue. Andy gave you the kind of objective introduction. I'm going to give something a little bit more subjective because uh, Kathleen is one of my favorite students of all time. She's a former TA of mine, and she's a very modest person, but she's really the world's expert on the issues we're going to talk about. Andy briefly mentioned that she has specialization not just in legal ethics, but in Government ethics and those aren't exactly the same thing. They they overlap and reinforce. Andy, you and 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 others have, have taught me various Yiddish words. And as a mentor, I get to cavell mm-hmm. about uh, my star student Kathleen. And 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 I should say, actually, we um, we just, just want to thank Kathleen because we reached out to her and immediately she reached back and said, "Sure, I'll do it." So thank you so much for being willing to share your your expertise on on these issues. Of
0: course. Well, you know Akil, you've just uh, you've just uh, just um given away something with the podcast because we talked about some uh, ethics issues a few weeks ago uh, about Justice Thomas. And then we said, oh, well, let's get a real expert on. So, right. um, but since so that Kathleen responded right away, that tells our audience that the fault is ours for <laughs> delaying in, in contacting her, you know, at that point. But anyway, um, it, you know, it's great to have her here. And so why why do we want an expert in judicial ethics, you know, now as opposed to some other time? Well, I think it's pretty obvious to our audience that there's been a you know bit of a fire in the rear here, um, you know, on, on these matters, uh, in the media. And, um, so let me ask, um, Professor Clark, you know, is this, uh, our recent events actually, uh, you know, far different from the norm of what we see, um, in the judiciary? Do we, you know, in other words, there's been a lot of publicity about this possible, um, problem or that possible problem. Is it just that, um, you know, the particular justices that are uh, involved here are um, of a particular per- political persuasion, or is it, um, you know, or do we see this sort of thing all the time?
1: We, we don't see this sort of thing um, all the time, um, in part because um, I would say that the Supreme Court is frankly the least ethical institution within the federal government. Um, and And by that let, let me be clear I'm not saying that the individual's justices are morally bad people. That's not what I mean when I talk about um, ethics. Um, what I mean is um, with regard to government ethics there are sort of a, a set of standards and also uh, procedures or protocols um, that are in place in the executive branch and in the even the legislative branch. Uh, that help ensure that officials abide by the substantive standards. Um, But those protocols are just about entirely absent um, in the Supreme Court. And those safeguards, the lack of those safeguards, uh, in my view, mean it was absolutely inevitable that there would be this kind of ethics scandal at the Supreme Court Um, because the, the the protocols that could prevent such a scandal simply don't exist at the court. If I could just be a little bit more specific by the protocols and, and safeguards, what I mean is this. I, I don't mean like the substantive ethics standards. There's been talk about the need for an ethics code. And and I, I wouldn't disagree that there needs to be an ethics code. But what there really needs to be at the Supreme Court is uh, there needs to be a, a mechanisms for accountability when there are violations. And right now there are barely any mechanisms for accountability, except frankly, through the press as, as we've seen.
0: Mm-hmm. So what might, uh, some, so first of all, why is it that there aren't these methods of accountability? You're describing a, a you know, a sort of a system of ethics that, uh, sounds weak in some, in some sense. Um, so how did it come to be that way? Is that Was it always that way? Is this by design? Are there deep purposes behind you know, such a weak uh, formal system? You know, relying on the informality of the press. Um, so what what's behind all this?
1: Well, I, I think that one of the reasons that the Supreme Court has the, the, the weakest ethics within the federal government is that it is... Um, Different from, say, um, other parts of the judiciary, right? Um, and so, for instance, if a judge recuses from a case, there's another judge who can just kind of come in and substitute in and, and, and so on. And we don't have a bank of substitute Supreme Court justices who can fill in when, when there's a recusal. But, but more than that, in my book, um, there's, frankly, a kind of arrogance on the part of the court, essentially think, asserting that it, it doesn't need to have the same kind of accountability mechanisms um, that other parts of the federal government have. And so we saw a consequence of that last year when the court initiated a, an investigation of the leak in, in the Dobbs case, the abortion case. But the Supreme Court doesn't actually have, you know, unlike the other two branches of government, still, of course, doesn't actually have sort of a, a built-in accountability or investigative capacity. It doesn't have an inspector general the way most agencies in the executive branch have an inspector general. And so, and, and then in addition to that, the I think it was the, was it the sergeant at arms or the, the, the person who was given responsibility for this investigation, someone mm-hmm. who, as I read, as I've read, doesn't actually have like uh, a significant amount of experience in conducting investigations. Um,
2: the court martial, I believe. The court.
1: Thank you, court martial. The investigation didn't actually include interviews uh, with the justices themselves. They interviewed dozens and dozens of court personnel, but not the justices. Again, sort of exempting themselves from standard issue accountability mechanisms. No one, nobody likes being held accountable, right? So it's it's completely human. It's not surprising that the justices wouldn't want to subject themselves to accountability mechanisms, um, but perhaps with the sort of cascading ethics scandals, that may um, come to an end, perhaps.
2: Hey, Kathleen, on, on yep. that, I think, uh, and I'm not an expert and you are. I think I read somewhere that the person doing the investigation, she's actually a graduate of University of Illinois. College of Law, I know just because my brother's a dean there. I think she said she talked to all the justices, but there were different rules of engagement with the justices than, let's say, with the law clerks and staff. I mean, maybe some were under oath and others weren't, or some were formal interviews and, and others were, were different. But I think she said she talked to all the justices, but they were just sort of under very different protocols and procedures. Is, is my recollection wrong on that? And it very well could be.
1: No, no, Akil, you're, you're right. So when the initial investigation report came out, there was no mention of whether or not, uh, the investigators spoke with the justices. Then I believe it was the following day or two afterwards, uh, there was a sort of a supplemental disclosure, uh, that there had indeed been, I think, I think the word was conversations with the, uh, justices, but what uh, my understanding is that, as you say, the rules of engagement were completely different, and we have no visibility into what the nature of those conversations were, because those conversations could have been for briefing the justices on the progress of the investigation.
0: Right. In fact, Justice Alito was quoted recently as saying that he believes he knows the identity of the leaker, but doesn't know it to a degree of certainty that would allow him to uh, say who it is. Um, But that suggests that he's, he's been maybe briefed or, or something, Um, you know, he received information in some manner. So to, to, or not, you know, but, but to, uh, to make that statement. So if
1: I could just, can I just stick with the Dobbs uh, investigation? So I, I just think that's a perfect and very recent example Of what happens when you lack accountability mechanisms, you end up with an investigation that is really a sham. It's a joke. Um, It wouldn't be taken seriously. As I say, perhaps uh, the public and maybe Congress uh, will have had enough of this, this approach to ethics.
2: And and just on, on that particular issue, I'm a friend of the court. And I'm a friend of many of the justices, as our audience knows, which is one of the reasons, Kathleen, I wanted to bring you in because, you know, I'm kind of compromised in a way because I, I like these people as, as individuals. And I like some of the senators as individuals. So you're saying she doesn't of, like them? No, no, no. I'm just saying I, I had to sort of disclose to the audience uh, that I have, but but I don't do this as a scholar, uh, legal ethics and, and government ethics and judicial ethics. I only know it on the side. So I want to bring a, a real expert in. And I know right now people are talking about things different than just the Dobbs leak, uh, uh, which is uh, a year ago in the rear premiere But But I'm glad Kathleen started with the Dobbs leak because it's not about uh, Justice X or or Justice Y. Um, it's, it's about the court more generally. And I just want to say I think the court itself was very ill-served by the way in which that investigation proceeded and, and concluded or actually failed to conclude, just kind of and ended with a, a kind of a, a fizzle because the justices and the court should want to get to the bottom of this. And, and they didn't get to the bottom of it, or at least in a way that they could share with the, the rest of us. And, and I don't think the court was served by that. And I say that as a friend of the court. They, they were so worried, perhaps, about losing control by having someone from the outside, you know, um, open the the box and and, and look in um, with great care that they ended
0: up, I would say, hurting the court itself. Yeah, I think that, you know, you could put yourself in the in the person of, a, of one of the justices and you could say, well, of the people that are that could possibly have leaked the draft, the justices are on that list. And so. You know, they presume. Let's assume for a moment that none of them did. Um, then you would you would want to be exonerated. You know, given yes. that you're that that you know you're on the list. So, right. so by being Please interviewed put me under, me under oath, oath. that's exactly. put me under oath. I right. want to be
2: put under oath because yeah. I didn't do it, and I don't think any of my colleagues did. And I volunteer to be put under oath. You you might think,
1: mm-hmm. if I could, I want to um, draw an analogy um, or a comparison. It may seem like ancient history, but um, in the early 1990s and uh, 1991, when Clarence Thomas had been nominated to be on the Supreme Court, the first set of hearings for his nomination, I believe, were in September of 1991. And then, after those first set of hearings, which were sort of standard issue um, Supreme Court nomination hearings, there was a leak of an allegation that Clarence Thomas had engaged in sexual harassment of one of his subordinates, uh, Anita Hill. Then there was a second set of of hearings that kind of, I think, transfixed the the, the nation, I think. Um, now, full disclosure, I was actually a, a staffer at the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, which is why this is so clear to me. But in any case, after, you know, the, uh, Thomas was confirmed, the Senate authorized, uh, I believe, a special counsel to investigate the leak to find out, to try to find out Who leaked this information that had been in the hands of of members of Congress, um, but eventually got into the hands of of Nina Totenberg and another journalist at, at Long Island Newsday? That investigation actually permitted the special counsel to interrogate, to interview Members of Congress themselves, senators themselves, unlike the Supreme Court justices, those senators did not exempt themselves from that kind of investigation, that 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 leak investigation.
2: So. um, So you were you were um, asked under oath, for example, since you were uh, involved as a staff person?
1: I was not because I had not had access to the information. I was not on the um, nominations staff or it wasn't just nomination staff because it, it reached uh, beyond that, but but I had not access mm-hmm. to it, so I I don't rec- I don't recall being interviewed or you know signing any affidavit or, or anything and, along and those lines.
2: And on on that same um, line, did we? Uh, and Nina Totenberg, by the way, is a friend of this podcast and has agreed to come come on it. So she's going to be on soon enough. And and when we ask her who leaked, she's not going to tell us, of course. Um, no, she not But won't. we we never found out, right? Who who leaked, or we did. So the there was and the a, same um, with the Kavanaugh thing. Um, although there are lots of speculation, especially about Senator Feinstein's office. But did we ever find because the bottom of either of those two leaks? So
1: let's. Put, I want to come back to the Kavanaugh one. Um, with respect to the, the, the Anita Hill leak, there was like a, a very lengthy investigative report. There was circumstantial information or evidence suggesting that a staffer may have uh, been responsible, but there was no uh, conclusive proof. I wouldn't put, frankly, the Kavanaugh quote investigation by the FBI, if that's what you're referring to. This sort of supplemental FBI investigation for Kavanaugh's second uh, set of.
2: of no, I, I, uh, I think there were th- three things. It was this first hearing, which you would say is standard. And yes. then there was the Christine Blasey Ford set Correct. of allegations and a further FBI investigation. But I was asking yeah. about whether there was any investigation in who leaked, because I think Christine Blasey Ford didn't initially, you know, want her allegations to be public. She wanted them to be handled in executive session. There, There is a Senate procedure for handling certain sensitive things. And I I think it really kind of wasn't followed. And I think it was, I testified in the first round about the standard round. I think it was generally understood that she had originally approached Senator Feinstein's staff. She's a Californian. Senator Feinstein is a Senator from California, and the Senator Feinstein staff, at least, had this information and then held on to it for a while, and then somehow it kind of leaked out rather than just being processed in executive session, as I think Christine Blasey Ford preferred. Senator Feinstein said that she didn't do it, and I take her at her her word, but they were public accusations in the Senate itself um, about... You know, Senator Feinstein's office mishandling all of this. So that's why, you know, what I just said earlier, I think isn't, you know, liable per se, because it's kind of reportorial privilege of just reporting what people actually in the Senate said, um, very openly about, um, how this whole thing was mishandled, the leak of the allegation, not the inquiry about Brett Kavanaugh, but the, the FBI investigation, but the, the question of how this as with Anita Hill's allegations, kind of came into public view rather than being handled through the um, more confidential um, executive session process that the Senate actually has set up.
1: Yeah. So, Akil, um my memory of that, and I haven't uh, looked back at it recently, was that there was some controversy about whether Feinstein, I believe, did not share the information with Senate Judiciary staffers, or not staffers, but, you know, other members of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. And I I believe she uh, was subject to some criticism for that, even though that apparently was honoring a request on the part of Ford. But I can't come up further because I just, I don't remember the facts of that.
0: Okay. Well, let's, yeah. So this is all, all, you know, interesting and there are ethical questions. Of course, one thing that you're talking about here, there are different levels of, of, uh, regulation you know whether it's you know so so for example the um the draft opinion uh on in Dobbs, you know is of a different level of confidentiality than just information that was you know told to someone and maybe it's confidential maybe it's not you know um so so there are these different levels and that of course brings us to 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 an interesting question about ethics which is you know this question of bright lines um you know, we have a certain, and this has come up recently, right? That 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 uh, Justice Thomas, you know, has been in the news for a variety of things, including um, possible failure to disclose uh, monies that came his way or things of value that came his way, you know, by virtue of friendship or not, you know. Um, so that's uh, you know, there are legal requirements. Some, there's some federal laws. Um, but when we talk about ethics, you know, sometimes we're talking about things that are not exactly the same as law, right? So first of all, um, and, and so I, we want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about um, something that you said about the Supreme Court being you know, resistant to supervision and being different from other courts. So first of all, you could see that lower courts could be supervised by higher courts, you know, theoretically, um, or disciplinary boards or, or whatever. Um, but uh, the Supreme Court can't really be supervised by a higher court unless we had a court of Supreme Court supervision or something like that. Um, you know, there's a certain structural difference that you alluded to uh, where the Supreme Court is different from, from other courts. Now, the Supreme Court could also be regulated by other branches of government um, and has been, like, you know, the Judiciary Act, of whatever, you know, uh, one of the first acts passed by, by Congress. Um, so certainly there, there is regulation there, but you could see where the court is resistant to that. Um, so I think part of the problem here is that we have, I think what you're alluding to is that we have limited tools in the toolbox to regulate the court. So maybe you could talk about why that is, you know, so to sort of go back to... You know the beginnings here, um, which we like to do on this podcast. You know where does where how did we get to where we're at, and are there good reasons for it?
1: Okay, so um, one of the um, issues that I know that you wanted to to cover today is you know what are the sources of judicial ethics, and I would first of all divide ethics restrictions into sort of substantive restrictions and then disclosure standards. Okay, so let's talk first about sort of substantive ethics restrictions, substantive judicial ethics restrictions. One set of standards uh, that I think fits into that category are standards that require recusal under certain circumstances. So, where do we find recusal standards? Well, one of the places we find a recusal standard is in the Constitution itself, in the very general language of the Due Process Clause of the Constitution. And the Supreme Court. Has issued a number of opinions relatively recently identifying circumstances where a judge, or you know, for that matter, a justice must recuse, is prohibited from participating in a matter. Why does that happen? It happens when the judge has a bias, when it's unlikely that the judge will able to be, will be able to be uh, neutral in considering the case. And and that might be because, be because of receiving massive uh, campaign contributions. uh, If it's an elected judge, Um, it might be because The judge has previously been involved in the case, say, at a lower level or as a prosecutor or as a participant in some way. Um, So those are just two examples of where the Supreme Court has said a judge, as a matter of due process, constitutional law has to recuse. Okay.
2: And, and Kathleen, I think you can mention case names. we have got a very sophisticated um, <laughs> audience here, including a lot of law clerks, including, sure. fr- frankly, probably uh, law clerks who are c- clerks to the U.S. Supreme Court. Maybe I know judges listen to it, maybe justices. Yeah, I think you're talking about, for example, the the Caperton, the, the West Virginia case, Caperton, oh, well, the, first, the Massey the, case.
1: Right. The, the Caperton case had to do with massive campaign contributions to, I believe, a, a justice on the West Virginia Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, I believe, said that um, under those circumstances, uh, the that particular justice had to recuse from a case involving that donor or his the company. His company
2: yeah. Right. And let me just mention one other one, since you mentioned due process. This is actually how I begin America's unwritten constitution. And our audience will note we're 10 minutes into the podcast and I haven't yet plugged anything, <laughs> a book, but, but now now wow. I have. Okay. In this 2012 book, America's Unwritten Constitution, I, I begin with the following question, which was not the most pressing substantive question in the world, but was theoretically, to me, fascinating. I said, I asked, who presides at the vice president's impeachment trial? Were the vice president ever to be impeached? And my answer is, It can't be the vice president um, because no person can be a judge in her, his own case. And the reason I thought that was so interesting theoretically is I'm saying the unwritten constitution not only means stuff in addition to what the written constitution says, okay, well, there are unenumerated rights, privacy, for example, the right to testify in a criminal case in your own behalf, lots of unenumerated rights that go beyond what the text says, but here The unenumerated, the unwritten constitution arguably goes against what the written constitution seems to say at face five, because the written constitution says Senate tries all impeachments. The vice president presides over the Senate. There's a couple of exceptions. The vice president doesn't preside when the president's being impeached. The chief justice does. The vice president doesn't preside when she or he isn't there, the president pro tem. But those exceptions aren't applicable. This isn't a presidential impeachment. And the vice president is there and says, oh, I like the gavel, please. And so I said, but you can't give her. You can't give him the gavel because no person can be a judge in their own case. And then you can say, well, you just made all that up. And I said, actually, let's look with care at the chief justice clause. So why does the chief justice preside? in presidential impeachments. And my claim was that's actually a recusal rule because if the chief justice didn't preside, who would ordinarily be the presiding officer? Well, it's the vice president and the vice president would have a conflict of interest in presiding over a presidential impeachment trial because if the trial resulted in the president's conviction back at the founding, you know, actually, the vice president was the leading rival of the president. The person came in second in the presidential contest. And, and that wouldn't be fair to the impeachment defendant and the judge, you know, the presiding judge would have a kind of a conflict of interest over the the, the whole thing. And, and so I claim that the chief justice clause is actually a recusal rule of sorts. That's the deep logic behind it. And, and in the opening chapter of the book, I actually begin, this actually came up because the question was, At Andrew Johnson's impeachment trial, the first presidential impeachment ever, on the first day, in the first few minutes, there was a question about whether Benjamin Franklin Wade, the Senate president pro tem, Senate uh, from Ohio, could participate, because if Johnson were convicted... Ben Wade, under the presidential succession rules, would become president of the United States. And is that a kind of conflict of interest? And, and so, so I actually think even before the due process clause, which is the Bill of Rights in 1790, 90, um, 91, um, proposed in 1789, even in the original constitution, when you read with exquisite care, you see there's actually a kind of recusal rule of sorts in the Chief Justice clause. And we need to think about the logic behind it. And then your final point is, well, you say, well, they said the Chief Justice has to preside you know, when it comes to um presidential impeachments, they didn't say anything about vice presidential impeachments. By by negative implication, the the vice president could preside at her own, his own impeachment. I said, no, they didn't say it because it was so obvious. It obviously went without saying, you know, for thousands of years, way before the Constitution. It's a, actually a Latin phrase, nemo iudex sua causa or something. No one in Latin, no man, that can be a judge in their own case. That's like. Law 101. And you're saying that's why it's at the base of the due process of law clause, because it's the base of the idea of the rule of law.
1: And I want to come back to that idea that no one can um, judge their own case in, in, in a minute. So, oh, but before I I move on, um, you asked me to name the cases I was referring to. So the first one was Caperton. Mm -hmm. um, And and the second one I alluded to, I believe, is a case uh, Williams out of the state of Pennsylvania, where a justice on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had to, the Supreme Court said, had to recuse because I believe years er or decades earlier as a prosecutor, Mm. that lawyer, uh, later judge, um, had authorized the death penalty against this individual defendant. OK, so we have uh, the Constitution's due process clause as one source uh, for recusal standards. Uh, but Congress has also legislated on this, on recusal. It codified a, a couple of standards that apply to district court judges and, and, and appellate judges. But the one statute that I want to re- focus on applies not just to judges, but also to justices on the Supreme Court. The, the site is twenty eight USC four fifty five, and that statute sets out a general recusal standard, a general standard that recuse that a judge or justice has to recuse when the just judge or justice's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. Okay, so let's just like focus on that for a second. It doesn't say when the justice is actually biased right it's it's a um it's a lower standard than that or or higher depending on how how you think about it if if a justice's impartiality might reasonably be questioned then the justice has to recuse and then the statute sets out a number of very more specific situations where a judge or justice has to recuse including situations where the judge or justice's spouse is known to have an interest that could be substantially affected by the outcome of the proceeding. That's just one example of, of a specific recusal trigger. But here, what I want to come back to is this. When a judge, when a lower court judge is, say, when there's a a request that that judge recuse under this statute and the judge uh, refuses to recuse, my understanding is that the party can appeal that refusal to recuse. The Supreme Court practice is that every individual justice decides for themselves how this statute applies to them, how this standard applies to them. In other words, the practice at the Supreme Court is that each justice is the judge of their <laughs> own case appeal. So, yeah, uh, that's one example, I think, mm-hmm. of how the Supreme Court needs to get its act together, needs to get it. Mm-hmm.
2: And um, this isn't a personal thing, Kathleen. Just want to make clear to our audience <laughs> this is not about Justice X or Justice Y behind a veil of ignorance. This is your very considered view as someone who has spent many, many years thinking and writing about this.
1: Well, um, no, Akil, I'm just quoting you from a few minutes ago that no,
2: <laughs> well, that was my no view one- in 20, that was my view in 2012 behind the veil of ignorance let the chips fall where they may. Yeah.
0: I think that's I just- a lovely point, you know, and, uh, as we're all smiling and we hear it, um, Let's take it in a, for a moment, maybe just to... You know, I, I am interested in the, the general background, obviously, since I asked about it, but um, let's just take it in and apply it to a recent event. Um, so recently it came out that uh, Justice Thomas's... Uh, well, that uh, Leonard Leo had given um, a fair amount of money to an organization, this was back in, I think, 2012, called the Judicial Education Project. And so um, it was perhaps as much uh, as $100,000. And I believe that Ginny Thomas um, was was affiliated with this organization in some manner. And when he did so, now there's apparently a record of him having said... um, no mention this is a quote no i don't know i'm not sure what it's a quote from but you can you can enlighten us on that you know no mention of ginny of course okay and then in the shelby county case that uh that organization files an amicus brief okay so um and now you know sh- is that you know an adequate uh, grounds for justice thomas to you know have recusal all of himself in that case. Um, number one, and number two, when we're talking about people being judges in their own case, we have Leonard Leo making a judgment on his own, right? He's hiding the fact that you know that he doesn't want any mention of Ginny, Thomas. Um, he says so. so that and and what he says when he's asked her,, well, why did you want to keep her name off the paperwork he says, you know, knowing how disrespect is a quote, knowing how disrespectful, malicious, and gossipy people can be, I have always tried to protect the privacy of Justice Thomas and Ginny. So, you know, I think I may have told this story before on this podcast, but um, this reminds me of when you know my daughter uh, wanted to, uh, you know, to do something, and I said, "Well, um, you know, you can't, you, you can't uh, do this." You know, and then she she goes ahead and and does it, and later I say, well, why did you do it? You know, why didn't you tell me about that? And she said, well, if you told me, I would have said you would have told me not to do it. You know, so that's why I didn't tell you. So in effect, she's being the judge in her own case there, or the father in her own case, um, and uh, so Leonard Leo is making his own judgment, keeping the you know the powers that be from having this information, and Justice Thomas is making another you know judgment here. So. You know, can so all this seems to tie in with that principle, and it it gets to, in a way it gets back to this question of supervision. You know that the justices are are judges, and they're okay. So, what would be the alternative to that? Who's going to supervise? You know, the court um, on these matters.
1: Well, on the question of recusal, one option is to make explicitly clear that a party seeking recusal could essentially appeal a justice's individual decision not to recuse to the rest of the court. In other words, in the first instance, ask the justice to recuse themselves. And if that, if they're unsuccessful, then then appeal it to the, the court as an institution, excluding the mm-hmm. justice at issue.
2: Mm-hmm. As a practical matter, because okay, I'll be honest with our audience, you see, because I'm friendly With some of the justices, I feel awkward criticizing them, and if I feel awkward at such a remote distance, hundreds of miles away, you know, some of them couldn't even, you know, pick me out of a phone book. Um, You know, I've never met some of them. They are working so closely with each other in a fishbowl, and it's a lifetime. Gig and you know what goes round comes round and the rules for you are going to apply today are going to apply to me tomorrow. So are they actually going to feel kind of comfortable doing that and are they going to do that vigorously? Question mark.
1: That's a great question, Akhil, and it raises I think the the possibility or the option of creating some other kind of approach to refusal where the appeal wouldn't go to the colleagues but to some other entity, right, um, uh, of, you know, retired justices or oh, it's so amazing! It, 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 it,
2: it's so amazing that you quite independently suggested that, Kathleen, because – Kathleen is relatively, this is the first time she's been on the podcast and she hasn't actually heard all 120 plus, you know, previous episodes of it. But in a previous episode, in several previous episodes, Andy, you and I can remind our audience that that we talked about an idea of 18 years for the justices of full bench service. And we thought that that would conduce to judicial humility. But we also said it would solve two other problems. One, the problem uh, cuz when what uh, Kathleen mentioned earlier in a lower federal court, when one just judge has to recuse, you just swap someone else in and the case gets heard, no problem. But at the Supreme Court, if one person has to recuse, the court is short staffed. Then what if it's four or four? There's a circuit split and it doesn't get resolved, which leads justices under a thing called the rule of necessity sometimes to say, well, unless it's necessary to recuse, it's necessary not to recuse. And if we have too liberal a recusal standard, then that's going to mean that we can't hear all sorts of things and we have to hear things. And so but I said, oh, if you've got retired justices or senior justices at the ready to fill in, then even if Justice X has to recuse for some reason spousal reason, financial reason, whatever you've got an ex justice Y or senior justice Y who can fill in at any moment. And that's good. It's better than nothing to have that option. And second, I said, and we talked about it in an earlier episode, Andy, how maybe the group of ex-justices could be particularly useful both in promulgating more specific rules of ethics because they kind of know where the line maybe should be having served on the court for, for on the front bench for 18 years and could maybe even be you know the, a better set of adjudicators, decision makers about applying these ethical rules to the, the, the front nine, the, the front bench. it's it's not a perfect system. there probably isn't a perfect system. but Kathleen is so interesting that you quite independently, suggested it.
1: Yeah. And and I guess the other thing I'd add about your idea of having a bench (laughs) of alternative substitute justices, it seems to me that that might actually make the court seem more like a court and less like nine politicians. I mean, I haven't thought this through, right? But certainly what we have now, in my view, and I, I i doubt Akil would agree with this, right, is we have nine politicians. I mean, obviously appointed by presidents in recent years, absolutely appointed with their ideology front and center. That is, frankly, sort of inconsistent with notions of, like, judicial fairness. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the reality, but it's it's inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you're right that having... Um, sort of, uh, you know, 18-year terms and then a bench of substitute or, you know, alternative justices would absolutely, enha- I believe, would enhance the credibility of the court.
0: Mm-hmm. By and the way, Akil said, said one that one there, Akil said he had two reasons. We actually have 18 reasons um, <laughs> in, our, in our podcast. For Yeah, because Andy this. keeps
2: kept prodding me and, you know, and it was like, Columbo, oh, and here's another thing. Oh, and that gets me thinking about, here's yeah, another reason. But, but Kathleen said one other thing that I just want to highlight for the audience. We bring on guests, um, who are not puppets and mouthpieces. Some, you know, we have guests, you know, who disagree with us on this or on that. We have guests on the left. We have guests on the right. That's what we're trying to do in this podcast is to bring genuine experts who don't always agree with each other, don't always agree with Andy or with me. But we think that they're the best people and you audience get to hear from the best people. Um, And and so if any justice is listening here, what Kathleen says does not necessarily (laughs) reflect, you know, the views of this podcast or Akil or Andy or whatever. Kathleen speaks for Kathleen, Akil speaks for Akil, Andy speaks for Andy.
0: Well, so let's get back to this question of recusal for a second. So you, you know, you outlined the standard, which, you know, a a reasonable justice, you know, so that's a pretty uh, nonspecific standard right you know you're, you're you're calling on someone's reasonableness you know well you know reasonableness to decide what you know exactly um how close is too close a relationship you know where's the line and the, and that sort of thing and if you're if you're going to appoint some someone something whether it's an independent board or whatever to decide or the other justices um they're going to have to apply some standard um and you know right now this is especially if they're going to say to them, you have to recuse because of X, it's not going to be that satisfactory for them to say, well, it feels wrong, so therefore you have to recuse. Um, so so they're probably going to want to appoint to some specific you know, criteria or something like that. So let me just push back, though, on, not that I'm opposed to it personally, but just in terms of trying to come up with arguments, um, the the idea that if That more specific recusal standards would be a good thing, because I could envision a scenario where a litigant, or let's say a litigation organization like the NAACP or something like that, you know, tries to find the right case. Well, part of the right case might be to have a litigant that would cause the recusal of a justice that is, you know, has a position adverse to the desired outcome. So that you have people structuring, you know, the the cases to get justices off the court. Now, of course, if we had this bench of justices, that would help to address that. Especially if you didn't know who was going to, like, if they put a put them in a hat and picked one out, you know, at the time, or so, rather than just take the most senior or something like that. Um, but you know that that seems to me an argument on the other side of having you know firmer recusal standards. So, could you comment on that? I
1: could, yeah. So, um, I. Initially, I focused on one um, clause in the recusal statute that is, uh, one could say, rather vague, right? Um, a justice has to inc- uh, recuse if the justice's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. But that same statute has other clauses that are more specific, other recusal standards that are much more specific than that. So, for instance, I believe if the justice has a financial interest in one of the parties, then the justice has to recuse the judge or justice. Um, Let me just flag here. This is a clear standard, and in too many times it's honored in the breach, as a Wall Street Journal series of articles from a year or two ago demonstrated not just at the Supreme Court, but at at lower courts as well, that that the procedures that uh, lower courts had in place, as well as at the Supreme Court, for preventing a judge or justice from sitting on a case where they actually had a financial interest, that those procedures were inadequate, because I believe the Wall Street Journal identified dozens of instances of judges and justices violating that recusal standard. So it absolutely is the case that there are more specific recusal rules uh, within this statute. And one of the ones, one of the standards that came up about a year ago or so is this, that the judge or justice has to recuse if the judge or the judge's spouse or the justice's spouse is known by the judge to have an interest that could be substantially affected by the outcome of the proceeding. So that's not necessarily the same as having a financial interest, right? And this particular provision was in the news about a year or so ago when Justice Thomas refused to recuse in some January 6th cases that came before the court, and there were at least some some commentary that he should have recused from those January six cases because his spouse Jenny Thomas had arguably had an interest that could be substantially affected by the outcome of the proceeding of these January six proceedings. Anyway, I'm not going to make that argument here, but I just wanted like, to like flag that even some of the more specific standards um it may not be you know obvious from far away exactly how they would apply
0: so um well you say you're not going to get into that case you know too specifically but actually i'm interested in how you uh, as an expert approach these things specifically so let's take if not that case um let's go back to the shelby county situation and the judicial education project so you're 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 quoted in the washington post actually not quoted but they uh, but they say, well, here's what they say. They say, law professor Kathleen Clark of Washington University said that if the Judicial Education Project paid Jenny Thomas $100,000 in the year and a half before it filed its brief, the size and timing of the payments would have been enough to cast doubt on Clarence Thomas's impartiality and require his recusal. So that's not in quotes from you. That's a quote from the WashPow. So you may not have used those exact words. Um, but at any rate, so that's, so if that fairly represents, you know, your conclusion there, could you it give does. us, take us back to your analysis of the facts in this case and how you approached it as an expert and to come up with this conclusion?
1: Yeah. So w- what I'm relying on there is the general standard, the whether or not the justice's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. And so um, the, my understanding is that right in the year, as, in the year and a half, before this amicus brief was filed in that case, this particular non-government organization that, that eventually filed the, the the brief paid Ginny Thomas what, what was the figure like uh, about hundred thousand dollars.
0: Yeah, I mean, Allegedly. there was a twenty thousand dollar payment, and then there was there were eighty thousand dollars in other payments. The the payments right. where he was quoted as saying, like no mention of Ginny, was a twenty thousand dollar payment, but there were eighty thousand dollars in other similar payments.
1: Yeah, I want to be clear: it's not a party that paid Ginny Thomas, right? Um, it wasn't, you know, Shelby County itself, right? Um, instead of it, it it's it, it's a, a, an amicus. Um, a a friend of the court, it seemed to me that that seems like a substantial amount of money. Right. And to receive that amount of money so close in time to this particular case, I think it's reasonable to question the justice's impartiality.
0: I, mean, I don't you...
2: remember the details of, of any of this, but I think there may at least be two issues. One, Kathleen just spoke about, because I do think in my own mind that there's a pretty big difference between parties and amici. When, as an amicus, I think I'm not very different from writing an op-ed, truthfully. Whereas I, if I'm a party, that's, that's a very, very different relationship to the court. So, so, um, but the second issue that I'm not sure we highlighted is I think at least, and there are so many stories and I haven't been able to keep track of all of them in my mind. I think some of, of at least the stories involving Leonard Leo involve money that wasn't paid by Leo or his organization directly, but by a, a, a third party run by Kellyanne Conway or something, something else. Again, I, I haven't followed all, all the details. And, and you know, it, does that matter? Or do you just say, well, that's just laundering of funds. And I would think, you know, th- there would need to be some proof of a certain thing. And then finally, just I, I, I do mention, of course, giving everyone the, the, the benefit of the doubt, we'd also need to know not just what the facts are, but what Justice Thomas knew the facts to be at, at a certain a point, because truthfully, I don't always mention every single thing to my wife, you know, and, and not because I have stuff to hide. I hasten to add, but just, you know, that we, it's a busy life and, and she may not always mention stuff to me. Well, okay um, let me,
0: let me interrupt you. And in, since you it'd be better to proceed based on the facts. So since you say yes. you're not sure. So, there's, let me read from the... Now, they could be wrong, but here's what it says in the Washington Post article. Great. Right. It says, In January 2012, Leo instructed the GOP pollster, Kellyanne Conway, to bill a nonprofit group he advises and use that money to pay Jenny Thomas, the document show. The same year, the nonprofit, the Judicial Education Project, filed a brief to the Supreme Court in the landmark voting rights cases. Leo, a key figure, blah, 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 um, told Conway that he wanted her to, quote, give, unquote, Ginny Thomas, quote, another, actually, this 25K, I misspoke with 20K, uh, unquote, the documents show. He emphasized that the paperwork should have, and then no mention of Ginny Thomas, of course. Conway's firm, the polling company, sent the Judicial Education Project a $25,000 bill that day. Per Leo's instructions, it listed the purpose as "quote supplement for constitution polling and opinion consulting." Unquote. The documents show, and then it goes on about another eighty thousand um, dollars. So that's those are the facts as reported by Wa- the Washington Post.
1: I, I, I'd like to underscore some of the things that we don't know. Um, we don't. You're you're right, Akil. We don't know what. Um, Justice Thomas knew about Jenny Thomas's relationship to this Amicus, the Judicial Education Project. We also don't know why Jenny Thomas received that twenty five thousand dollars or the eighty additional eighty thousand dollars on top of that. We don't know what services she provided. We don't know whether the the, the term use was. Give her another 25. Right. That's that's what the what the quote was, I believe. Right, Andy? Yes.
0: Um,
1: it, And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it was a gift. Right. But, but we simply do not know. Why the Judicial Education Project was paying her. Um, we don't know why it was going through Kellyanne Conway's consulting firm, whether it was actually for services provided or not. There are lots of facts that we don't know. Um, I, I, I want to acknowledge that um, it, it, it could be substantially worse, but we just, we just don't know that at least not yet.
0: But I guess the question and, and is and given yeah, what we do know. Yeah. yeah, Do we know enough to, for you to, well, I mean, you did offer an opinion, um, but you know, um, What is the logic from the facts that we do know to your opinion? What is the logic chain there?
1: So it's that there is a financial relationship between this amicus and the justice's spouse. In my book, it's considerably worse that, we didn't know that there was an effort to, frankly, hide mm-hmm. the financial relationship mm-hmm. between this organization and Jenny Thomas. But even with what we know, uh, it just seems to me that it's reasonable to question the justice's impartiality under these circumstances where there is that kind of financial relationship.
2: My take on, on that case is, is as follows. I'm on record as saying that I think the Shelby County decision was the worst decision of the United States Supreme Court in the last 20 years, and the only one in the era that compares with it is uh, the even, even worse decision in Bush versus Gore. And my friend Clarence Thomas was actually, I think, on the wrong side of, of both of those, and I'm on record as, as saying that, and I'm very harshly critical of Bush versus Gore, as our audience knows, having heard all of our ISL episodes. And I think Shelby County was horrible. On the merits, That framers of the Reconstruction amendments meant to give Congress very broad power to protect voting rights and civil rights and other rights of African-Americans, on, on my view, from an originalist perspective. I do very, sh- more sharply, I think, than Kathleen, I do distinguish between amicus, amici and, and parties. And I don't really think that my amicus brief with Steve Calabresi and uh, Vic Amar, and Steve is connected to but does not speak for the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo is connected to the Federalist Society in interesting ways and has all sorts of other um, things going on. But I don't think, I wanted to make two points since Leonard Leo's name has been, been brought up. One is in this amicus brief, I really don't think it was very different than the piece that Vic and I wrote the year before in the Supreme Court Review, making many of the same points about why ISL was, in our view, I think, and this is the word in the title of the piece, rubbish. That's actually what we, we said we were, but on Leonard Leo and the Federal Society, our audience you know, might be interested to know, I believe, that Leonard Leo, not the Federalist Society, but Leonard Leo and his affiliates have spent a lot of money on the ISL side of this issue. Of this side <laughs> emphatically opposed to um, my view, Vic's view, Steve Calabresi's view. So first, big shout out to Steve Calabresi for joining our amicus brief, you see, with reasons, you know, not money, reasons. And maybe they'll persuade the justices and maybe they won't, but good for him. And Leonard Leo's money was on the other side of this case. He's financing a lot of the the litigation on the other side in more direct ways, I believe. But I do sharply distinguish uh, between am- amiki and, and and parties. I'm more you're, like a You're scholar. right
1: to distinguish because they are there are you know any number of ways that they're different. But let, let me come back to this. Um, the, did you say that you you filed an amicus? I did um, formally file well, and there
2: were rules for formally filing like and absolutely. Andy will tell you it could be only a certain number of words and oh my gosh you know just because <laughs> I'm so uh, long-winded just getting down to the word count and okay. and, and representing that we didn't get money From any other group. And finally, uh, there there were all sorts of rules that uh, uh, Vic, who was the uh, formal um, lawyer in the case, and and he's a member of the bar and he had to make certain representations. And I promise you, he was very fierce. He said, listen, brother, dear, you know, I'm, you know, uh, I'm an officer of the court. I have to make absolutely sure that everything I say is you know correct and proper and that's not true in an op-ed it is true when you file an amicus brief so there are there are some differences be, uh, important differences between op-eds and and amic, uh, okay, amicus but, briefs let,
1: let me come back to this so that up uh, that um that amicus brief that you filed there is a court rule requiring disclosure uh, or affirmation i guess that no party uh, financial support came from any of the parties correct okay? Fair enough, and I—it seems to me that's a that's a terrific rule. There's no rule requiring disclosure of financial payments from the amicus to the spouses or family members hmm. of the justices.
0: Hmm. Right, and hmm. I mean, I think part of the problem here is that we're looking—we might be looking at some of these things in isolation. Like, okay, you say, oh amicus brief it's not the same as you know it's like an op-ed because i wrote the thing and you know i I expressed my opinion and i'm trying to convince the justice based on my reasoning and my you know and Mm -hmm. how is that different from an op-ed well or law review uh, article this is longer but here here's a difference okay um i pay you i give your wife a lot you're a justice i give your wife a lot of money um but i'm not talking to you about the case you know i know so how do I express what I want? What the significance of this money is? Well, I file an amicus brief. Now you have mm-hmm. no question where I stand. You know, I write, I write an
2: article in the Supreme Court Review, and you write. also know exactly well, where I stand. But, and hold on, Andy, my answer is none of that is ex parte. The thing discloses itself when I write in the New York Times or the Supreme Court Review or in an amicus brief. And one thing that Kathleen is saying is disclosure, sunlight, these are good things, disinfectants. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, actually, amicus briefs are on the up and up, and I have no financial interest. um, You know, I'm not a party. I have no legal interest in
0: the thing. And law review articles and op-eds, they disclose themselves. Well, they do, but but an amicus brief brings something to the attention of a justice in a way that an op-ed doesn't. Um, because it's put right in front of them, you know. Yeah, uh, although the
2: audience should know, I wrote a piece in Slate after the oral argument in the Obamacare case and it actually, you know, be, begins by saying, may it please the court. I'm, yes. I'm writing this as if it were an amicus brief, because I think actually certain things weren't said at oral argument that need to be said. And I'm going to say them here. As I said, I actually don't think that was so different than f- having filed a formal amicus brief, um, which I should have if I had just gotten my act together. But, you know, well, I, uh, I didn't do it in time. Yeah, that's Let me fine. For
1: just one, one moment. So, Akhil, I want to come back to this amicus brief that you filed uh, with your brother and, and, and others. Um, Steve Calabresi. Thank you. Would it have been okay for you and your other Amiki to pay the spouse of a justice
2: $100,000? Good question. Yeah. Um,
1: Is that okay? And if you did, would that undermine the... Public confidence right. so, in the impartiality so, so, um, of the justice.
2: My, my honest, so this is why we have this, you know, podcast. The, the, the audience is hearing, you know, the arguments back and forth. My own view is, it honestly wouldn't. I would say it's much, much more similar to the question of whether. That would be true if I didn't file an amicus brief, but just wrote an article on, on on the same thing, which I did with Vic in the Supreme Court review. And major portions of the brief are just taken from the article. And it wouldn't be actually that different if I you know, wrote a book um, or wrote an op ed on on this in a certain small world of of lawyering and government, I suppose people um, I don't do this because I'm just a professor and I don't have that kind of money to throw around. My name is not Leonard Leo. Uh, Does the New York Times disclose it uh, when it has some financial, let's even just say random house or, or, you know, uh, there are publishers all the time that are making contracts with justices, maybe their spouses and all the rest of, I draw the line not between amiki and the rest of the world. I draw the line between parties and amiki. And I don't really think amiki are remotely like parties to a lawsuit, truthfully. Okay, and
1: if I could come back to an issue that I think is a theme of yours, which is influence, Okay. Um, and, uh, sources of influence. And, um, Leonard Leo obviously was in the influence business, right? Nothing yes. necessarily wrong with that. You're right that the, as a legal matter, amicus, an amicus is not in the exact same position as a party, right? And what I want to acknowledge or assert is that it sure looks like it may well be, it might be the case that Part of the influence efforts of someone like Leonard Leo is not limited to amicus briefs and op-eds and placing judges on courts, um, but that it includes giving $25,000 to mm-hmm. a justice's yes. spouse that that's what it looks like Uh,
2: to me i I agree with you and money is totally different so we've identified several things it's not just money to justices it's money to their family members and we have to think about that yes okay and not maybe just spouses but of course our audience is thinking well what about brothers and sisters and nephews and and nieces and there are a lot of complications there so one thing is that money is an important issue and not just to the justice himself or herself so that's that's one thing that we've identified as a really important issue to be addressed okay there's the money issue but there's also the question of whether it's public effort at persuasion for me ex parte communications are particularly troubling and my claim is an amicus brief is not ex parte everyone in the world sees just what the justice is seeing an op-ed is not ex parte a law review article is not ex parte and my claim is because this is one of kathleen's bigger themes she's a big believer in disclosure i believe certain things disclose themselves and even if no money ever took it changed hands it would be utterly inappropriate of me in general to try to call people on the phone and 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 tell them my views on this or that or the other uh the other thing that's ex parte and that's a no-no even if I say the same thing in the phone conversation, you know, that I could have said in an op-ed or something, but if I didn't say it publicly, this is a problem, and even if no money changes hands. So there are two issues that we've identified, at least for me, that are important, which is, is money changing hands, and is this public or ex parte? But given that those are my main criteria, as I said, I tend to see amicus briefs as much more like a law review article or an op-ed.
0: Right, well, so, and I would say that, you know, here's where you start to get... I mean, maybe it's not that, you know, maybe it is, you know, splitting a hair that doesn't need to be split when you talk about, you know, op-ed versus amicus or whatever. But when you're trying to influence through your words, as, uh, you know, as Kathleen just said, that's one thing. But when you're pouring, you know, uh, you know, lighter fluid on it in the form of of money, so now you're you're trying to call attention to the words, you're trying to also um, perhaps you know, say that there are other reasons that you should follow these words, even if you don't agree with the ideas that are expressed there, um, you know, and so forth. So, so this is the, this question of things, you know, building on each other. So I would say that when we're talking about things building on each other, I'm also interested in, in Kathleen's take on the fact that we have now a number of different incidents recently about the same justice— you know, that are, you know, that that have ethical implications. So to what extent do you start to say, well, there was this and there was this and there was this, and now this is a, a more of a problem than looking at them individually, especially when there's no like real like, you know, prosecution going on here where you have, so anyway, um you know, what but, what's your reaction right, to that? Right.
1: I'm not sure whether this is what you're getting at, Andy, but what we have with Justice Thomas is repeated violations of the Ethics in Government Act in repeated failure to disclose information that absolutely was required to be disclosed under the statute. Justice Thomas, not just with the recent disclosures, but I guess about 10 years ago in 2011, I believe, had to revise a bunch of his earlier disclosures because he had failed to list his wife's employment which is required to do under the ethics and government act a government official is required to identify the source uh, or the employer of a spouse um, but doesn't have to reveal doesn't have to disclose the amount received in salary or 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 whatever and uh, justice thomas um, failed to disclose his wife's uh, employment and then more recently of course he, then then i believe he also Failed to disclose certain gifts. I'm not sure whether it was gifts of travel from uh, back in like, maybe 2012, 2013. But then, of course, most recently, there had been a series of revelations that I think you alluded to earlier of really lavish uh, gifts of travel by a Republican, sort of Megadona Harlan Crow, that he failed to disclose. And also failure to disclose Harlan Crow's payment for the tuition of is Thomas's grand nephew, who for whom uh, Thomas became the the guardian. So, and and then in addition, Harlan Crow purchased uh, property, uh, I believe in South Carolina, that Thomas co-owned, and Thomas failed to disclose that as required under the the Ethics in Government Act. So, what we have maybe maybe, Richard, maybe Georgia. Yes. Oh, you know what? You're right. It's not South Carolina. It's Georgia. Thank you, Akil. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's Georgia. So we have this, you know, repeated failure to honor his statutory obligations to disclose. I just want to add something else, which is that, and, and this is not on Clarence Thomas, this is on the inadequacy of the te- of the statutes, right? That justices, government officials, as I say, don't have to disclose the amount of uh, their salary of their spouse, but worse than that, they don't actually have to uh, disclose the real source of the income. So Thomas was not required under the statute to, re- to disclose that um, the Judicial Education Project was the actual source of the income th- or gift that, that, that Jenny Thomas received. And that is an inadequacy uh, of the statute. That's not Thomas's fault. That's frankly Congress's fault or not imposing adequate uh, disclosure obligations on you know justices and on other high level officials
2: and just on on that It's possible that, I don't know, but that someone could distinguish between being a child and a a ward, just on technical legal grounds, because I think the statute talks about children, but maybe not wards.
1: Yeah, Akil, uh, you're right. The statute doesn't refer to wards. Uh, Instead, it refers to dependent children. And dependent child or children is defined in such a way that it would not include Thomas's grandnephew, on the other hand.
2: Sure. No, no, I, I, I just, um, this was a gift to Thomas. Um, Thomas
1: had taken on the responsibility for educating his grandnephew. But but here's the second thing that,
2: that here's the second thing that, I could imagine someone saying, and this is, this is the problem. And we're always going to have, you know, uh, line drawing questions. And, and Yogi Bear once famously said, gee, if you could only move for a space one foot, we could get rid of all the close plays. So no matter where the line is, there are going to be line drawing problems. Andy was telling me that grandparents actually sometimes do give gifts directly to their grandchildren by paying tuition and that's not treated as a gift to the son or daughter but directly to the grandchild and they often uh, structure the transaction by p- paying the tuition check directly to the school um, um that's a uh, tax
0: law though that's not yes. an ethical question well no th- th-
2: and i'm about to get to that andy so there are yep. nice questions about and this is why people hate lawyers because uh, sometimes you say well was it a gift or not and the person will say, well, why are you asking? Because it might be a gift for tax law purposes, but not for ethics law purposes or vice versa. Or we might have the same rules for gifts as for tax law. And some of this actually I know in education is kind of complicated. And Kathleen, the reason I mentioned Georgia in particular, just so our audience knows, is and, and this Andy, we mentioned this, I think, in an early episode Harlan Crow has said that he is interested in buying certain properties because they were Thomas's boyhood home um, right. where his mother still lives. And he wanted to buy that piece of property and adjoining pieces of property and eventually create a public park or some memorial in Thomas's honor. And the reason this is interesting, Andy, to you and me in particular, is we participated in an event very recently um, in Georgia, where Alabama, um, right? Oh, excuse me, you know, I'm uh, yes, getting my so- southern states mixed <laughs> up here. It You're happens to all company. of us, Kathleen. Um, <laughs> that in Alabama, um, in Clay County, Alabama, um, there was a public park um, dedicated to the memory of Hugo Black, and and Andy and I were there for for that event. And the reason that place had particular significance is that was Justice Hugo Black's boyhood home I think Crow was going to try to do for uh, Georgia for Thomas's boyhood home what actually folks in Alabama have done for Hugo black's home and that's why he was buying the property to begin with or at least that's what I read in the, in, in the
0: papers right but I'd like to that's all interesting but I'd like to get back to where we yeah. were for a minute ago with with Kathleen about these things piling up on each other you know regarding uh, you know Justice Thomas's you know, and she's saying, okay, these things are unequivocally violations of a statute. Um And, you know, I'm sort of reminded of, you know, Andrew Jackson, say, you know, asking, you know, how the justice is going to enforce his, you know, his ruling. I mean, you know, so, okay, great. He violated the statute. So, first of all, to what extent is are these a bunch of gotchas that they don't actually matter, you know, uh, or... um you know, to, to what extent do they add up to something that's a lot more than their individual, uh, you know, faux pas? When we talk about ethics, you know, which is the bottom line here, um, are we talking about, the fact that, that we need to have confidence in the supreme court and feel that it's an ethical institution made up of you know ethical people and if it's not then those people that are that are there should resign if they aren't you know if if they've lost you know the the designation as an ethical individual you know, or do we need some, some way to discipline them? And how does this go to judicial independence? You know, it sort of, it's sort there's a whole bunch of questions that are raised by this notion of a pattern of misbehavior um, on ethical matters. So I, I'm very interested in Kathleen's thoughts about this you know, specifically and also structurally.
1: So there are um, a couple of different um, accountability mechanisms for violations of this disclosure part of the Ethics in Government Act. And um, one of the... Accountability mechanisms involves the uh, sort of this uh, administrative body for judges and specifically um, one particular committee that has the responsibility to consider alleged violations of the disclosure provision. And my understanding is that back in around 2011 or so, when a non-government group pointed out that Justice Thomas had violated the act, that this allegation was sent to the committee, but then essentially died there. And that procedure for evaluating his alleged misconduct didn't go anywhere. I believe that there was actually a a, a recent article in the Washington Post about Judge Wolf from Massachusetts expressing concern about the failure to follow up on the allegations against uh, Justice Thomas back in 2011. In addition to that procedure, which, uh, again, I think has been invoked with regard to the most recent uh, disclosure violations or allegations, there it, the, the Ethics in Government Act sets out both civil and possible criminal penalties for knowing and willful violations. So the idea is We all make mistakes. And Mm -hmm. if someone makes a mistake on their form, that's not necessarily criminal, right? I mean, that isn't criminal, right? It's, It's a mistake. But if it's knowing and willful failure to report what was required to be reported, that can subject someone to both civil and criminal penalties, as well as penalties under the 18 U.S.C. 1001 false statement statute. And there have been folks, government officials, executive branch officials certainly, who have been prosecuted for filing false financial disclosures. But what's more likely to happen, and I think should happen, I believe, in the case of uh, Justice Thomas, is a civil penalty, or at, at the very least, a Justice Department investigation of whether his repeated failure to disclose gifts from Harlan Crow constitute a willful, a knowing willful violation of the Ethics in Government Act. Former Office of Government Ethics Head, uh, Walt Schaub, and a colleague of his at the Project on Government Oversight have filed a letter, sent a letter a few weeks ago to the Justice Department uh, requesting an investigation, that they initiate this civil investigation, and and these civil fines can be substantial. They can result in, I, I believe, fines up to, on the order of seventy thousand dollars for each instance of civil violation. On the other hand, there's a statute of limitations for that civil and criminal accountability, and I believe it's four years. So it'll only go back four years, not all of his failures to to disclose.
2: And if he were to hire a lawyer to represent himself in this, what would you think that might be the the best set of facts for such a lawyer and the best arguments that such a lawyer could, could put forth on, on behalf of uh, what at least initially doesn't seem to, to your expert, I look, look very good for, for him?
1: Yeah, it, it doesn't look good. And of course, I don't know all the facts. So there may be like mitigating facts that I... Just what don't what
2: sort? Opinion. What sorts of things would mitigate? See, because I, for example, said, "Well, you could say son daughter is different than Ward." And oh, well, there are these gifts. As see, you, Kathleen, you can't see is, is actually giving oh, me yes, the thumbs Oh yes, you can. Down. That's going so, on
0: Instagram. So oh,
2: okay, <laughs> um, but but you know, just because um, I, I, I I really believe in you know in being absolutely fa- and you do too, of course, and um, being absolutely fair. To everyone. And so I'm just trying to imagine you know what might be mitigating here.
1: In response to the first ProPublica article about the lavish gifts, Clarence Thomas put out a public statement of a couple of paragraphs where he asserted that he had consulted colleagues and thought he didn't have to disclose these Mm -hmm. gifts. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that he thought that was a defense I think demonstrates the inadequacy of the ethics infrastructure at the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um and I suppose that if he actually did consult someone who had any kind of expertise or or responsibility for interpreting or you know understanding and, and advising court personnel on mm-hmm. these um uh, disclosure obligations and was given inaccurate information, if that actually did happen, right, mm-hmm. if he went to that special committee of the Judicial Council, right, That and, and they gave him wrong information, mm-hmm. that absolutely would be mitigating. Uh, on the other hand, if he just talked to, you know, one of his colleagues who's, if, if he alleges that he talked to, uh, you know, a colleague who has already passed, right, or, um, someone who doesn't actually have that kind of expertise or responsibility I don't think that is as anywhere near a strong um, mitigation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if it's mitigation it's, at all. it's because... sort of like if I ask my neighbor a question rather than going to someone who actually has knowledge <laughs> like I'm not well, I suppose
2: he asked a bunch of other judges how, how do you handle uh, these forms
1: yeah so if if he went to his colleagues um I don't find that particularly persuasive but but you know uh, you're
0: a tough grader <laughs> well I think it goes back to this notion of recusal we were talking about before It's yeah. not a recusal question but the yeah. the idea that the judge their judges in their own case are always well, talking to the yeah. other judges in their, their which own is cases. why Andy I actually said when you pushed me
2: to nail me to the wall last time that I actually think you should have a divisive counsel on these things because you know
1: Absolutely. Which is why there should be an ethics advisor within the Supreme Court to advise justices on their legal obligations and to review their financial disclosures for adequacy.
2: Wow, that's great, because I know we're coming close to the end. But Kathleen, that's a very specific takeaway point, not personal, just going forward. Here's what they absolutely should do. They should there should be an officer, a lawyer um and i know cuz i read some of your work that that lawyer's obligation should not be to the individual justices but to the court and to the system you you distinguish between you know uh lawyers for the president and lawyers for the presidency or lawyers for a, a particular person named joe biden or donald trump and lawyers for the presidency so so you think there should be actually a permanent court officer in charge of making sure that these rules are understood and complied with and, and advising the justices about that. That I, I hadn't Absolutely. seen that in print, but but that's a Absolutely. good take home.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's what exists in every single executive branch office. And that's what exists in the House and in the Senate. And frankly, that special committee that I referred to is has that responsibility with respect to Judges, but my understanding is they don't have that responsibility with respect to justices. The justices have exempted, you know, so um, the justices have brought this upon themselves and they, and they can, they can, they can make a lot of movement towards solving the problem as well.
0: So in the end, then um, you've identified this this systemic problem and offered a a one aspect possibly of a systemic solution. Okay. So that's a problem. Is justice Thomas a problem?
1: Justice Thomas through his actions over the course of decades, I believe he appears to have demonstrated contempt for his obligations under the
0: ethics and government act. And just by I, way of I reminder, could be wrong. hopefully
1: yeah. I'm wrong, but so you've
0: held him in, in contact. And,
1: and,
0: and just, seen, just, just by way
2: of reminder, this is an honest podcast. Each of us speaks for himself, herself. And, and we, I wanted, and Andy wanted to bring a harsh um, critic, at least in know, in the press accounts and a genuine expert to explain Her views and the reasons behind them, because we think you, the audience, are entitled to to hear the best arguments on all sides. And I've confessed on multiple occasions two things, which remain true: that I'm not an expert on this area. I'm I'm learning stuff about these statutes that I that I didn't know an hour and a half ago and audience members that may be true for you so so i'm not an expert that was true an hour and a half ago that that's true uh at the end of this podcast um although i know a lot more i understand a lot more than i did before and i'm kind of quasi-recused on on this candidly and i'm being honest just because i actually a friend I consider myself a friend, and so I should recuse myself. Um, because I, you sh- you can't really sometimes be a, a judge, not just in your own case, but in the, in the case of of your of your friends. You're you're going to be biased in their favor.
0: This is a problem. I thought that I was going, that in the future, if I ever had a problem, I'd rely on the saying, "I'd rather know the judge than the law." <laughs> <Right. laughs> anyway, well, you know, this seems like a very uh, appropriate time to pause. Um, a word I've chosen carefully, because I'm hoping that uh, we can we can ask Professor Clark you know to return at a future time because I know we've not we've not heard the end of all this. Um, <laughs> so I'm hoping that we can follow up with you uh, in the future and of course. Uh, Thank you. So I think our audience was really uh, you know privileged today. I know we were, and uh, I think that we we got to a lot of, I mean, it's a big topic. As I, as Professor Clark will attest, I sent her, you know, you know, five hundred <laughs> hours worth of uh, questions that we yes. discussed. So, but yet I think the audience, you've you've been enlightened and gotten some perspective. And of course, we welcome your your questions. You know, you could submit through the website. But thank you so much, Professor Clark, and uh, hope to speak to you again in the,
1: in the future. Thank you so much. This was really fun. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Tim. You take care. Mm-hmm. Bye bye.